Biz News Power Hour. So warm welcome to you. This is the 19th of January. I'm Alec Hogan with me in studio, Michael Apple, and in our virtual studio from Cape Town, Justin Rowe Roberts and Nadia Swat. We've got a program with a lot of variety for you tonight. Uh, after hearing from the Financial Times in London, our partners over in the UK, where they speak about the big deal of the day. It's a trillion rand. Uh, acquisition by Microsoft of a company called Activision, which is one of the largest gaming companies. After that, we'll hear from Melanie Vaness. She is the chief executive of the Peter Maritzburg and Midlands District uh, Chamber of Business. She and uh, together with the Nelson Mandela Bay Chamber are taking NERSA to court. They are taking on the national energy regulator over the increases that we're seeing in or proposed increases by Eskom and the municipalities passing it on. Um, Michael Apple, you had an interesting uh, discussion as well with our investigations editor, Martin Veltz. Yes, uh, this is about the nexus between freedom of speech, uh, animal rights, things that we claim to like like the right to privacy. How much can you cling to your right to privacy in a world where we put so much information up online? So it's a case that went to the Eastern Cape High Court, then to the steps of the Supreme Court of Appeal, potentially going to the apex court in the country, the Constitutional Court. And it's all related to, you've heard of the tortoise and the hare, this is the porcupine and the baboon. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, listen to the show. Yeah, stay with us and we'll find out more about it. Uh, Justin Rowe Roberts, you had a interesting discussion also uh, about the delistings on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange. The delistings continue unabated, Alec. It's a serious concern, although it is within the small to mid-cap sector. What Mario Stradam outlines is that there's no value in small to mid-caps being on the JSE just as a result of the lack of analyst coverage and a host of other factors which he outlines, some scary propositions, and probably better just to be in the private sector. We'll hear about all of those stories coming up, but first, let's get the news headlines. BrightRock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity, and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets means change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by BrightRock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Nadia Swat, as always, has the news headlines for us. SARS whistleblower Johan van Lachrenberg's house was burgled this week, marking the second state capture witness to have their home invaded in a week. While typical criminality common to South Africa could be at play, van Lachrenberg says that several factors about the burglary indicate that this was not a normal break-in. Given, ex- given its proximity to the burglary of former GCIS CEO Temba Maseko, another state capture whistleblower, and the release of the first part of the state capture report, observers are raising red flags. There have been calls for authorities to take whistleblower safety more seriously. U.S. biotech billionaire Patrick Sunshong on Wednesday launched a plant that will produce a billion COVID-19 vaccine doses in Cape Town by 2025, fulfilling a long-time plan to help bring greater health equity to the country of his birth. Africa struggled to secure vaccines while healthy, wealthy countries were already giving their populations shots. 
while doses have started flowing to the region, the continent is seeking ways to ensure it isn't left behind again. In May, Sun Chong said that he would give an initial 3 billion rand to South Africa to help with the transfer of new technology for COVID-19 vaccines and other therapies, including for diseases such as cancer, HIV, and tuberculosis. Consumer inflation rose to its highest level in five years in December, backing the case for a potential increase in interest rates as soon as next Thursday, when the Reserve Bank's Monetary Policy Committee sits down for its first scheduled meeting of 2022. Consumer price inflation, as measured by Stats SA's Consumer Price Index, hit 5.9% year-on-year in December, its biggest annual increase since March 2017, when the rate was 6.1%. The MPC meeting comes against the backdrop of increased market volatility, which is driven by uncertainty on the extent to which the U.S. Federal Reserve will increase rates to tame inflation, which rose to an annual rate of 7% in December, the highest since 1982. Back to Justin for the market. The JSU share index was up at 75,800. In the currency markets, the rand was largely flat against all the major currencies. At 15 rand 31 cents to the dollar, 20 rand 89 cents to the pound, and 17 rand 36 cents to the euro. Gold is flat at $1,809 an ounce. A Kruger rand will cost you approximately 29,000 rand. Brent crude is up at $88 a barrel, and the premier cryptocurrency will put you back 650,000 rand per coin. In the financial news, Microsoft, the world's second largest business by market capitalization, has agreed to buy video game maker Activision Blizzard in an all-cash deal valued at around $70 billion. To put that into perspective, that's over 1 trillion rand. The acquisition will expand Microsoft's video gaming portfolio and makes it one of the largest players in the industry, behind the likes of Tencent and Sony. Johan Rupert's Richmond continues to go from strength to strength. The luxury good maker had a bumper festive period. Strong growth in its primary operating jurisdictions, Asia and the Americas, were the main drivers of growth. And lastly, Aspen Pharmacare released a rather upbeat operational update, but this was overshadowed by the news that the sale of its active pharmaceutical ingredients, API business, had fallen through. The API business has been negatively affected by COVID-19, with sales going backwards during the period, and the pharma giant was unable to fetch the value it attaches to the business unit. Thank you, Justin. Um, Michael, before we move uh, move on to the other things on the story tonight, this Johan van Lochrenberg uh, break-in. Last night, uh, we ran with Temba Maseko's similar uh, issue. Do you think the two are related? Two whistleblowers, uh, very prominently named in part one of three of the state capture report. Um, Temba Maseko saying to me uh, that... They are going to be required to testify in courts of law pretty soon because these are just recommendations. Once the MPA gets their act together, these whistleblowers need to testify. The state capture enablers and facilitators are hiding somewhere. And Maseko, at least, believes there's nothing coincidental about this. This daily market report was made just for you by BrightRock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Today is Wednesday, January 19th, and this is your FT News Briefing. In France, lawmakers want health warnings on car ads. The auto industry isn't too happy about that. And in the U.S., airlines have been facing off against telecoms companies over their rollout of 5G. Plus, Microsoft's mega deal for Activision is about more than just video games. 
they, they need the content there that's central to attracting people to this new metaverse. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need. Global car makers are pushing back at a new law in France that will soon require them to include disclaimers in their ads like consider carpooling and take public transport. The measures are part of a broader climate change law, and it's one of a kind. Ad experts say the requirements have no real equivalent in other countries. A French executive said the law shows the divide between lawmakers in Paris and people in the rest of the country who don't have many transport options. One industry source told the FT that they don't think the measure is going to stop anyone from using their car. At the very last minute yesterday, American telecoms companies AT&T and Verizon agreed to water down their expansion plans for 5G wireless service. They were supposed to go into effect today. Airlines have been warning that the 5G rollout could lead to flight chaos. Some international airlines even plan to suspend some U.S. flights. Here's the FT's U.S. business editor, Andrew Edgecliff-Johnson. The concern among airlines is that these new high-speed 5G services will interfere with the frequencies that they use on equipment like altimeters, which tell a plane how high off the ground it is, and that that could cause disastrous problems when planes are taking off or landing. And this was all supposed to have been resolved by now. There have been two delays to rolling out these 5G services because of these concerns. And the Biden administration has been trying to mediate between the airline industry and the telecoms industry. But at the 11th hour, we discovered that the airlines believed that this had not been resolved and that the measures that the Federal Aviation Authority and others had put in place would not be sufficient to protect their planes from having these kind of problems. So, Edge, exactly what have the telecoms companies agreed to do for the airlines? The airlines have been asking for them to basically leave a two-mile buffer zone around the major runways of the country's largest airports. AT&T and Verizon have been resisting that, saying it wasn't necessary. Um, But on Tuesday, they said they would do that pending further discussions with the airlines and with the authorities in Washington. But they made their frustration pretty clear when they did this. I mean, AT&T basically said, you know, why has it come down to the 11th hour after two years of planning for this? Uh, They're frustrated with the industry, the airline industry, but they're also frustrated with the FAA. Why have the telecoms companies been so resistant? What's at stake for them? First of all, AT&T and Verizon paid almost $69 billion for access to this spectrum only last year. So they have a huge amount of money rolling on the successful rollout of 5G across the country. And if the idea takes hold that there's something wrong with 5G in consumers' minds, that could be a problem. Second, the Biden administration really wants 5G services to roll out. They want faster wireless broadband to be accessible to more people across America to accelerate the U.S. economic revival. And that position is supported by big business groups like the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. They see this as vital to the economic growth of the U.S. for the next several years. So there is a lot riding on this beyond this short-term row between the aviation industry and the telecoms industry. Andrew Edgecliff-Johnson is the FT's U.S. business editor. Microsoft yesterday announced the biggest deal in its 
history. It's paying about $75 billion for the video game developer Activision Blizzard. The move will give Microsoft lots of content for its Xbox console so that it can continue to compete in the gaming industry. There's another factor at play, though. The FT's Chris Nuttall writes our Tech FT newsletter, and he told us that both companies have their eye on the metaverse. I think we're still in the early stages of the metaverse and what shape it might take, but it's pretty clear that the people with expertise in these areas are companies like Activision or Sony from the gaming world. You know, Activision is known for World of Warcraft, which isn't really virtual reality or anything like that, but it's an online world with with a huge community. Um, uh, Sony has, has had a kind of virtual reality um, uh, ventures and projects for, for many years and, and has a virtual reality headset. And then you have on the other side, the big uh, tech companies like uh, Google, Microsoft, Amazon, Apple, and Facebook, who who all have the market capitalization, the money, the resources to get into this and are actively getting into it with their own gaming services. So I think that there's the two competing areas of industry, which, which are now kind of merging in a way with Microsoft making this successful takeover of Activision. So Chris, what's in it for Activision? For, for Activision, it, it would never have the resources to compete with the likes of a, a Facebook or an Apple or, or, or Microsoft, for that matter. But uh, combined with Microsoft, it can be a, a major power. And, and it's not inconceivable that Activision could, if, if Microsoft at some point sees gaming as non-core, that Activision couldn't take back control. And, and what goes beyond that now in the metaverse and, and the, the, the shape of the next Internet? Now, we should say that Activision doesn't exactly come without baggage. Uh, it's had big issues with its corporate culture. One lawsuit describes the company as having a pervasive frat boy culture. How much of that was a consideration when Microsoft was planning this deal? I think it's been a big consideration. It's, it's also helped Microsoft in a big way in terms of that the share price has been depressed by um, all these reports of, 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 of a, an awful company culture at Activision and, and uh, to stories of sexual harassment. So, so that has helped in terms of the, the purchase price here. But, um, it's also a bit something that they're keen to emphasize in that both their statements that, um, over the next year or so, as, as this deal moves to a close, they're going to have to sort out that culture and, and present Activision as a, as a cleaned up company that, that Microsoft is, is proud to own. Uh, it isn't that at the moment. And there's quite a way to go on that, but uh, it's certainly a big factor in this deal. So more broadly, how much is the metaverse and all the plans to build this online universe where, you know, we're expected to spend all kinds of money and time, how much is that shaping corporate business plans? I think that the realization that there are mega cap companies, you know, we have a $3 trillion company now in terms of Apple, that these companies have such power, they can more or less do what they want and they can shape the future of the web, the internet, their app stores, how people make money out of this. And the metaverse is going to be a huge opportunity, in, you know, as, as Mark Zuckerberg sees it, to change the face of commerce, uh, the way we interact with one another, and and uh, change the face of gaming as well. And that's where they've started with Oculus and their virtual reality games. And but it's just going to go on from there in terms of spreading into the way we buy things, the way we watch things, and um, it's really only the big companies that can can lead in this. So they're certainly staking it out. And at some point, it'll be up to regulators to try and sort this one out. So there is more competition. But that's the way it's shaping at the moment. Do you think this deal makes the video game industry even more central to the tech industry? I think so in terms of 
a lot of this is to do with creativity and making something that people actually want to be part of. And, and you know, personally, I'm not that keen on getting involved in the metaverse and living in it. And um, it would have to be some kind of killer content or application that would get me in there. And, you know, you have to be creative. You have to go to the creatives to get there. It's not about data centers and having, um, you know, enormous uh, hardware, you know, power to, 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 to get people to, to come and do this, that they, they need the content there that's central to, to attracting people to this, this new metaverse. And so uh, I think g- uh, publishing companies, um, game developers are going to be key to this. And certainly this could be the start of a, a new wave of, of, of M&A in terms of, of uh, measures and acquisitions in terms of the video game industry. Chris Nettle is the editor and lead writer of the Tech FT newsletter. You can subscribe to the newsletter at ft.com slash techft. We'll also put a link in our show notes. Before we go, China's biggest jewelry retailer plans to open 2,000 more stores on top of its existing 5,000 stores. Chow Tai Fook is especially focused on Gen Z consumers. At one point last year, these young buyers made up more than half of the company's sales in one particular collection. These are the children of China's one-child policy, and they have lots of disposable income since they get all of the windfall from their parents. And China's Gen Zers are patriotic, so they prefer Chinese brands and themes like dragons and phoenixes over Western jewelry. You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news. Melanie Vaness is the chief executive of the Peter Maritzburg and Midlands Chamber of Business. You don't seem to be able to stay out of the news headlines. In July, it was the riots. Now it's Eskom. You've gone together with the Nelson Mandela Bay Business Chamber, and you have taken the National Energy Regulator to court. And just by way of background, have you done anything like this before? No, not as far as the energy regulators concerned, but we've been in a year-long negotiation with them trying to resolve the issues around municipal tariffs, and uh, we, we kind of got to the stage where we were left with no alternative. So uh, electricity, as you know, is a big input cost. The way that municipalities actually price electricity historically has been a problem because the legislation requires that uh, it's based on a cost of supply basis, but for, for many years now, NERSA has been basing it on benchmarking. How it works is that ESKIM applies through the various processes to get an increase. Once ESKIM's increase is approved by the regulator, then they recommend a tariff for municipalities to put in place. So it's a blanket tariff. Say ESKIM get 9% municipalities off a higher base, so they might get 8.5%, which is their recommended tariff. If if they want anything higher than the NURSA recommended tariff for municipalities, then they have to apply for an increased tariff and they have to justify why it is that they need one. NURSA will give due consideration to that. And in most cases, if there is no objection through a public participation process, they will award the municipality the said increase. But what has happened over the years is that different municipalities have therefore got different tariffs. So for the same product, also all over the country, you're paying different prices. And that differential is quite significant. I mean, if you look at the charges between, say, Cape Town's investment incentive of 135 
rand per kb per kilowatt hour and the city of Johannesburg's at two rand 12. I mean, the disparity is pretty significant across the country. So every year when you do this percentage, it's reinforcing a bad system and passing on all of the inefficiency that's set in that system onto the consumer. So also looking at the disparity between what a municipality charges and what ESCOM charges for what is essentially a similar service. I can only tell you from my own municipality side, if you look at, for instance, the demand charge that ESCOM charges them in Doozy, that is 12 rand 50 per kVA on a monthly basis, their charge to industry in our city is 102.30. So you can see that's per kVA. So, that, I mean, that's a monthly charge. So that's a massive differential already. If Eskom was supplying our customers at the rate that they charge their customers, it would be 35.87. So between 35.87 and 102.30, and we're not, we're not the worst municipality, but you can see where the problems arise. And some places in our city, we've got direct Eskom supply. We've got a shoe factory getting direct Eskom supply and a shoe factory on Mzunduzi supply. So they can't compete even within the same space in the city. So it's been an issue um, for us when the municipality have applied for a tariff higher than the, the nursery recommended tariff. We as a chamber, since I've been involved, have asked for a public hearing and have defended that tariff and got it down to the nursery recommended tariff, but it's still completely out of kilter. But it sounds to me like there's probably something going on behind the scenes when you, you take that difference of 35 rand to over 100 rand. The municipality is taking a significant cut there. Is this not a situation where the major income stream for municipalities is electricity and that they are then using that to perhaps subsidize inefficiencies elsewhere? Absolutely. I mean, the irony is that that our infrastructure needs probably about 10 billion rand before it, it will operate efficiently. So we're paying this massive premium for worse service and it, totally inconsistent supply and the quality is not great. And this system allows them to keep a lot of inefficiency and waste and corruption in the system. So I'll give you an example. We, we have an area, Mkundeni, um, which is an industrial area. And I'll get a call on a Friday night to say, you know, from SAPS to say, please, can I contact someone in, in the municipality to switch the power off because someone's been electrocuted and they need to remove the body off the power lines because of the, the amount of theft that takes place there. There's a big informal settlement that sprung up, 5,000 people, and they have constant power outages. And, and, and usually it's because of the fact that the community have tapped into the electricity infrastructure there. You don't actually notice at first because because they're actually quite skilled, the electricity thieves, because they, they go into the stormwater drains and then they break through the actual concrete of the stormwater drain and they stand in water and connect live into the um, to the infrastructure. So I've taken, I mean, I've taken several of our politicians there to say, please, our businesses are, are going for two weeks without power because the community keep tapping in here. We, we've uncovered it at one stage um, to protect it because it's got to be an under underground line it's too heavy to be an over because we thought if we have it above us we could have our security watch it and then it wouldn't be a problem um, but we couldn't do that so it was uncovered for a period of time and there's a political I'm going to say there's no political will whatsoever to address electricity theft and it's it's problematic from a sustainability point of municipalities from the point of view is that our that our indigent registers are never up to date so we never get our equitable share from national government because people don't want to be limited in terms of the amount of free electricity and water that they get um, if they can access it uh, through theft then they can have as much as they like so it's not a popular political decision just to clamp down on the theft 
we actually we've tried every which way around in our municipality to sort it out. We even had some of our businesses pay one of the private security companies 127,000 rand a month for a period of six months to stop the thieving in our in the one particular area. And we proved that it would be worth it. We've done that proposal, Tim Sanduzi. We said we've actually taken the risk. We've paid the money. We've shown you that we can protect the cables. You are spending 90 million rand a year on just repairing damaged infrastructure. If you took 10% of that and appointed an intelligence-based unit to protect our infrastructure, you'd be saving 80 million. And we bankrupt. We're we're under administration, so <laughs> there's no there's no take up of it. So it tells you that there's no will to address those inefficiencies and issues in the system, which means that that just gets passed on to us to pay. And the only way that we can see a way around the situation um, is to be able to say to NUSA, the legislation requires that municipalities must base their tariffs on the cost of supply, on the efficiently incurred prudent cost of supply, in which case there has to be some oversight on what the money is being spent on, A, that you can't spend it on on other areas in the municipality, it must be spent on electricity so that we don't have bad infrastructure. Secondly, you must be able to justify that as prudently, efficiently incurred costs. So, I mean, that's really the reason why we've landed up going to court is to say the only way we can address this is to is to look at the methodology that's applied before you award municipalities electricity uh, tariffs. So it's almost to force the municipalities into some kind of a disciplined straitjacket where they they cannot they themselves are going to have to operate more efficiently. Is Peter Maritzburg not not one of those municipalities where the ratepayers or the, the in the local elections where voters have said we need to change this government? Um, they did take a clobbering. I mean, I think they 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 got a bit of a fright. Um, it isn't. Uh, it it wasn't hung. They were just below fifty percent. So there is a majority for for the ruling party in Zanduzi. If you compare it to the representation they had prior to this last election, uh, there's a there's a really big difference. So I mean, I think ratepayers have said uh, totally unacceptable, and you would think that they would have said that long ago, considering that this is the second time in ten years that we we were under administration. Services are poor, absolutely poor, and um, I don't know how we trade ourselves out of this spot. It's tricky. So in a nutshell, what are you hoping to achieve with your court action against the National Energy Regulator? Well, we're hoping that the the methodology that the energy regulator applies in the future will require a cost of supply study from each municipality and that tariffs will be based on efficient cost of supply in order for them to qualify for, for any further increases in tariff. Because if, if we don't do something now, we're just exacerbating a bad problem every year by adding more and more tariffs on. And the more Eskom increase their tariffs by huge margins, I mean, we could be facing up to 40% on this latest um, application by Eskom um, and looking at the court action that they've won, etc. If you, if you add up those tariffs, that's pretty significant. So if we don't do something to halt this out-of-control runaway trade, business is not sustainable. So is it possible? That we get a new methodology. Electricity tariffs are then more standardised throughout the the country, so you don't get one municipality so far different from um, another municipality, and that the tariffs are nearer to what Eskom is actually charging the market as opposed to what we're actually paying now. So, is it possible to get to a situation that Eskom charges, say, eight percent more, and the municipality then also charges eight percent more? Or is that uh, perhaps a dream 
that is unrealizable. Well, you know, I mean, uh, I, th- I think the, the model for local municipalities is something that needs to be looked at from a sustainability point of view, because, mm-hmm. because you can't, electricity used to be a, a cheap resource, so it didn't matter if there was a bit of a margin made on it and it sustained the balance of municipalities. But now that electricity costs what it costs, it's impossible that you add on bits all the way through a bad system covering inefficiencies, not only in Eskom. I mean, Eskom also have a lot of, uh, in terms of their tariff and their application, a lot is built into that that is imposed on them, whether it's an uh, you know environmental levy or whatever it is. It's, it's added to that cost for Eskom's application. So there's a lot of inefficiency in there, a lot of corruption in their tariff which then, as it gets awarded every year, adds to, to, the, to the bad tariff methodology that's already employed for municipalities. So at some point, we have to, we have to clean out that system. There was a, a proposal some years ago to look at, uh, at REDS, and I think that's something that we have to look at the whole electricity supply industry and say, how should we be looking at the supply of, uh, of electricity in South Africa in order to make it possible for businesses here to compete, especially those that rely on uh, that that electricity is a high input cost for. We have a lot of metals here, so so it's a high input cost. So what you're doing is is an attempt to start getting to a more normalized situation, but we've also heard recently that the city of Cape Town, the young mayor uh, who's taken on there, Jordan uh, Hill-Lewis, is saying he refuses to pay the Eskom tariff. So it's almost like an inverse situation, isn't it? Uh, where there he's, he's fighting back and saying it's too high. Is that something that you might dream of happening with other municipalities around the country? Well, I mean, it's interesting that he's taken that position. And uh, in fact, we both presented at the NERSA public hearing yesterday. Uh, he, he was a speaker before um, ASAC, the Association of South African Chambers that uh, David Mertens and I represented. And it was interesting to hear their particular point of view. We also, I think, put in a strong objection to, to Eskom's application um, and attacked some of the, the technical issues and areas where we feel that NERSA needs to be looking at Eskom's application to say, you know, how is it that we, we're spending more, uh, we, we need more and more resources at Eskom to produce less and less electricity with the way the RAB has um, been calculated. There's, there's a lot of inefficiency built into that system. And and the law says that Eskom is only allowed to cl- uh, claim their efficient costs. So, and that's another whole interesting story because, you know, if if um, Madupi and Cassilia had come on board when they were supposed to in 2015, 2018, then all the consequential costs um, of their not coming on, on board would never have been borne by us. So it's all the load shedding since 2015. It's all the OCGT costs. It's all these additional costs that we're now talking about uh, car power ships and um, the cost of the IPPs had always speeded up, and that's a ridiculous, uh, ridiculously expensive form of energy. Not that we're against um, uh, bringing in that type of energy, but it needs to be competitive. And in these first uh, one, two, to three point five um, phases, it, it's it's ridiculously, outrageously expensive, uh, and that's got to be added into Eskom's tariff. So, um, you know. Can you say that was prudently incurred expenditure? Um, so not only are we paying for the fact that there's this 100 billion and counting um, excessive charge in the installation of that uh, of those power stations, and the financing costs, um, we're also paying the consequential costs, and and that all sits in a tariff. So so can you say that that those consequential costs should be considered uh, prudent expenditure? Uh, we think not. 
you know, so I think there's got to be a hard look taken at um, at Eskom's application, um, and I think there's a lot of room for NURSA um, to to look at reducing that uh, tariff application. The third business conference at the magnificent Champagne Sports Resort in the Drakensberg will be held from the 1st to the 4th of March. It's lining up to be the best so far. We've got a strong lineup of speakers. A single delegate cost is 7750 For couples, it's 12950 Book your seat by going onto the Business Investment Conference button on the right-hand side of the business.com homepage. See you there. Welcome, my name is Michael Apple and I'm in conversation with Biz News's Investigations Editor Martin Wells. Good to chat to you, uh, hopefully the first of many conversations to come. Uh, I love morning. morning. I, I loved how you started your uh, December article and this is, quote, a full bench of five judges of the South African Appeal Court in Bloemfontein assembled to hear an appeal arising from the untimely death of a baboon and a porcupine. It may sound a little fairy tale-esque type story, but it's a matter that's risen through the Eastern Cape High Court to the Supreme Court of Appeal, and it's a case that has potentially profound implications on social media, privacy rights, animal rights, and freedom of speech. For somebody who didn't read your December piece, and I'm going to link it in the article that stems from this, take us to the 1st of October 2019 and how this story developed from a seemingly innocuous bike ride on a farm. A farmer has set up, he had a, he had a cycling tour travel across his farm, and as it happens, one of these cyclists came upon the two large traps that he'd set for one for baboons, the other for porcupines, in which he had a, a victim trapped in both. Both, by the time the cyclists came upon them, were dead in these. And he was horrified, stopped his bike, got out his cell phone, took photographs. Dr. Bull Smuts, who is an animal rights activist uh, and also a campaigner for working out ways in which civilized man can live and farm and with with wild animals without wiping them out. So Dr. Smuts is equally outraged. He identifies the farm by its name on Google Maps. And he also finds Mr. Buerta's Facebook page where Mr. Buerta has a lovely photograph of himself with his infant child and his phone number. So he calls Mr. Buerta, asks him what the hell's going on. And Mr. Buerta says he has a license to kill all these. He's a license to kill baboons, porcupines and, quote, other vermin, close quotes. Right, this all gets reported on social media by Dr. Smuts. And the next thing is he gets an urgent court application from Mr. Buerta and his attorneys to stop him, to remove everything off social media. And they argue this in court before a judge of the High Court fairly soon thereafter. And the uh, Eastern Cape judge decides that Mr. Smuts was entitled to campaign and tell the world that it's nasty to trap and... Uh, baboons and porcupines and you find them dead uh, a while later Uh, but he's not allowed to say where it was or who was responsible because that's Mr. Buerta's private affairs it's his private property and you know and whatnot and Smuts loses the first round he then uh, takes it on appeal to the appeal court and 
the issues that are raised are, are of interest quite a part, as you've already pointed out, that it's not only about uh, cruelty to animals uh, and trying to wipe out species which we find inconvenient. It's all these questions of uh, privacy and freedom of speech, the conflict between privacy and freedom of speech. Yes, Martin, yes. I, I wanted to jump in there. Herman Boerter's argument, presumably, he felt aggrieved. He's a commercial uh, farmer. He also runs an insurance business. And a, a post on social media of this kind could have, uh, in his mind or from his point of view, at least real reputational and a financial impact on, on his businesses. Is, was that his initial argument in court? He, 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 he didn't actually raise it directly. I think it was more by implication. Because the oddity is he kept insisting there was nothing wrong with trapping baboons and a hunter friend had crossed by and actually shot them in the cages so they hadn't died of starvation. Smuts apologized for using a photograph with a six-month-old infant. I can't, frankly, myself understand what influence is going to have on a six-month-old infant. But anyway, uh, but it's much more interesting of how the judges eventually unpack this whole thing. Because, first of all, they take animal rights issues much more seriously than has traditionally been the case in South African law. There's one major case before by Judge Cameron uh, where he stipulated in terms of common law and basic modern sensitivities on moral issues that animals have rights in their own right. It's not just dependent on what human beings think or do or whatnot. They have rights to exist. And uh, in, independently, as I say, of human uh, wishes and desires. So that was the first major step. Well, in any case, the, the full appeal court bench confirms that view, that animals have rights. Uh, they are sentient beings that feel pain and fear. So the next uh, step was that how, how, how come identifying Mr. Butter? So Mr. Smuts's counsel argues to the appeal court successfully that when you put your face and your address and your telephone number and your views up on, on Facebook uh, and it's available on, on, a, on a Google search, uh, that's not private anymore. And not only that, but it's actually relevant that the public should know that you are the cruel bugger who's been, you know, uh, doing these unfortunate animals in on your farm. And he says quite apart from the fact that you have a permit. Uh, the fact is what you're doing is cruel. And uh, so, so it's, a, it's a moral issue, not a legal issue. But of course, when a moral issue, you know, gets public like that, it becomes a legal issue too. But once again, um, the appeal court judges, all five of them, concur that Mr. Boerta deserved to be exposed uh, and, you know, uh, he, his information was public, so he can't claim that that was private. And what he did, and in fact, the judges make two observations. They say when you criticize somebody like that, you're, you take up a position in public debate on politics or anything. You don't have to be polite, which was an interesting point they made. Yes. Sometimes you can be stirred up and the blood can be in your head, you know, when you have to say what you want to say. Uh, that that was the one thing. And um, as I say, you, you can't inhibit um, freedom, you know. And then the second point, 
if the public decide they don't want to do their insurance business with Mr. Boerter or they don't want to trade with his farm because he's cruel to animals, that's their right too. That was interesting. That that uh, well, of course, we all know when big companies get bad publicity because of things that happen in their shops, you know, clicks or whoever. All these companies have all had this experience. They are publicly exposed and they face public censure by way of the fact that people don't want to buy their goods unless they retract and behave themselves. It's a it's a way of enforcing public morals, I suppose. In any case, that's what's now recognised by our appeal court too. Uh, I think these are all, from from a media point of view, very important points, because a lot of the time we do expose what certain people would rather we kept we kept private. I mean that's a that's a major issue in South Africa. All the major fraudsters would love us to say, you know, tell us you don't like fraud, but don't say who we are and what we're doing. Uh, Martin, I want to circle back to something you said. The Supreme Court of Appeal in their judgment would look at the fact that you as an individual can't cling to your privacy rights when you yourself have published your private information online. And I think that's important to note here. Am I correct on that point? Absolutely. They, you know, so, so I, I'm not, there's some points are not quite clear. I mean, when they talked about identifying the farm on Google, I'm, I'm not sure how it was identified. I suppose there had to be some 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 lead to it. Maybe maybe the cyclist had you know had Google Maps and had pinpointed where he was. Yes, that 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 is that is possible. Is everything that Google can track is it uh, public information? Maybe. Hmm. I, I I I so so maybe my address isn't private. That's. <laughs> yes, I, I mean it's it's essentially a, a shot in the arm for for animal rights here in, in the finding that the public has the right to know about the activities on Boerter's farm that directly impact animals. That's quite a statement that they're sending out there. Yes, there, there's another implicit one here, and that is we're also allowed to know that some authority is actually issuing permits to farmers like him to kill an unlimited number of animals in a, in. Any day of the week, considered he can, vermin. He can set yes. out, uh, yeah, he can he can wipe out every baboon in sight, every porcupine in sight, and any other creature which is falls in the category of vermin. I'm not too sure how many do, but I mean, I suppose rabbits, uh, any number of uh, even even wild buck will be eating his his grazing for his sheep. You know, so I think every everything that's wild and moves can be shot. The, the public should have the freedom to choose uh, which commercial enterprise they support at the end of the day. And without all the facts about how somebody acts against animals in this particular case, uh, that should form part of the public decision-making process. And, and that's essentially what the SCA has, has hammered down here. Whether you yes. decide to be a client of Mr. Boerter in his insurance or through his cattle farming – uh, how he treats animals on his farm, you need to be aware of those facts, or at least it can be placed in front of you legally to determine whether or not you spend money with him. Sure. It's, a, it's, it's an interesting development, I think. Uh, and, I mean, there, there's a logic going down here, but it's perhaps a logic we haven't traveled before. 
If you as the author of a social media post, you put some, something up online, it is true, it's factual, and you are respectful. I mean, it's arguable exactly how um, Bullsmuts described Mr. Boeta in that post, but but for the main, it was it was factual and there were photos attached. If you as the, the author of a social media post put something up, you cannot be in control or you are not responsible for how the public responds to that post if they respond in a hateful or a racist or a threatening manner the court has said that's not the responsibility of the author of that social media post to police the response uh, yes i i'm of the of the view that that issue is still debatable because i think you can there are there are extremes to this. If if you're actually going to incite people to violence, mm -hmm. uh, you know the American example of storming the Capitol, uh, inspired by Mr. Trump, uh, you know, and breaking down the doors and threatening threatening people with violence. Uh, I I I don't think your right to you know freedom of expression extends to that that area the, the these are still there are still judgment calls involved here i'm sure when you take a, a position which you know other people are going to hate um that's no reason for not holding your own your own opinion and expressing it so i mean buerta had his initial win in the eastern cape high court smuts got his win uh in the supreme court of appeal in bloemfontein is there any indication that this matter will be taken further? I mean, they, it's argued there could be certainly constitutional matters at play here. Could this potentially go to the, the apex court? Uh, yes. I, I'm told that, in fact, uh, Mr. Boerter's lawyers have advised Mr. Smuts's lawyers that they are contemplating taking the matter on appeal. I, I, I imagine this, this sort of exercise becomes very expensive. Mm. Uh, I, I have no idea what Mr. Wurter's means are. We, when you start talking about taking cases all the way, I mean, he's now already faced with a substantial bill, I presume, from both a, a Supreme Court case followed by an, an appeal court case. So he, he runs the risk of round three. But of course, if he wins, then that's bad news for Dr. Smuts. The, the appeal court took the argument. I'm not sure that Mr. Smuts had in mind that people were going to stop, you know, doing business with Mr. Buerta. I yeah. think they were just, he was trying to shame him and, and, you know, expose how these things are happening. If I was the one having to decide if I'm going to the constitutional court or not, I'd be thinking 10 times because, as I say, the implications, financial implications become huge. And I don't know that you're going to, he's going to, from his point of view, take the matter much, materially much further. That's another side to the, the whole issue of taking, you know, defamation cases to court. I'm Joshua Roberts of Biz News, and with me today is Mario Stratum, CEO of ALG. We republished a superb piece of yours, Marius, which has gained a lot of traction amongst the business community. What I liked about it is the different look at the reasons for the max exodus of companies on the local bus, the usuals being political instability, the rise of private equity and the like. But before we get into all of that, just give us a little bit about your background and the company you lead. All right. My, my background is one of, uh, of stockbroking. Um, I've been an investment analyst for for a number of years. Um, insurance uh, was my was my speciality, so I uh, 
I used to cover the big insurance companies in South Africa uh, with a number of local and uh, international uh, uh, investment banks. Um, prior to that, I worked for insurance companies themselves. Uh, over recent years, uh, I shifted out of the, the stockbroking industry uh, into uh, uh, consulting. Um, and then we, we saw the, the, the trend or the writing on the wall um, in 2018, actually prior to 2018, uh, when the European uh, Union regulations changed with regards to research. Um, it, uh, it's called MIFID II, uh, which was introduced at the beginning of 2018, which in essence means that um, a stockbroker cannot be paid for their research through trade anymore. Um, in the past, you, 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 you traded with the brokers who you liked most from a research perspective, and that's how they got paid for that research. But um, in the European Union now, uh, you actually have to write a physical check for each report you receive, each phone call you receive, each uh, meeting uh, you receive from a broker. So you can't receive 10, 15 uh, uh, reports anymore and uh, you know, just pay the best guys. You decide the five you're willing to, to pay for. So we saw the writing on the wall um, and we uh, decided to introduce a different model um, into South Africa. So let's just take a step back now and look at this delisting trend from a global perspective. The number of listed companies are declining all over the world. This isn't a trend unique to solely South Africa. What are the main reasons for this? The coverage is certainly an issue, um, especially for the mid uh, and the small cap stocks. Um, they are not seeing the benefits uh, of being listed if they are not being talked about. Um, if they, they don't have sufficient consensus numbers, if they don't appear on the radar screens uh, of, of, of investors out there. Um, and of course, I guess another trend is the, the increase in passive funds. Um, so if you're, not in, if you're not in the index, um, you're not held. Um, and therefore, again, the, the smaller uh, uh, companies... Um, they're dependent on active uh, investing. And if, uh, if there isn't proper research on them, the, the investor has, a, has to do a great deal of work themselves to better understand these small companies. And, and it's not clear that the, that the, that the benefit uh, is there to do all of this work uh, you know, to hold uh, such small companies. One of the main benefits about being listed is the capital that you raise either from your IPO or thereafter, is the rise of private equity venture capital for these private businesses in order to get financing that much easier that being listed isn't that attractive anymore? I, I certainly would agree with that as, as, as a reason for, for this trend as well. Um, but it's a chicken and egg situation. It's not clear which one is, is, is the driving factor, whether the private equity firms are stepping up to the plate because the traditional investment banks are not doing the job that they used to do in the past, or whether it's the other way around, that the private equity uh, players are, are, are pushing out the investment banks out of the, the smaller space. South Africa completely missed the IPO boom that has recently taken place. 
As an example, 240 listings on the Australian exchange alone in 2021, hundreds more in the US. I stand to be corrected, but from my due diligence, not one new listing on the JSE in 2021. How concerning is this? I think it is, it is particularly concerning, and we have to ask ourselves whether we are, in fact, um, in the right kind of industries in this country, and, and uh, whether you know, the right kind of companies uh, uh, you know, are, are, are growing and, and looking for capital. Um, you know, a great deal of the listings that we have seen is, is obviously in, in, in more new generation type of industries tech and, and, and green energy, etc. Um, and, and certainly they, they, there's the potential for, for South African companies, um, and there are many uh, South African companies, obviously, in renewable energy, etc. Um, and I think if some of them were to start coming to the market, it, uh, you know, they, could, they could find some resonance. One of the key points you raise is the decline in foreign ownership in JSE-listed businesses. One of BizNews regular contributors, Magnus Haystack, an investment strategist at Brenthurst, has said on numerous occasions that this is one of the most important indicators to watch with regards to sentiment. When we as South Africa invest our money, there's emotion involved. We're matching our liabilities and rands. But the foreigners, there's no emotion, and they're investing purely on the fundamentals. Why is this foreign ownership such an important indicator to watch? The most important reason is that we actually have a natural flaw to, um, to investing in, in the JSE from South African investors. We've got foreign exchange regulations. You can only take so much out that the rest must be invested here. Um, we've got big investment by BEE uh, uh, parties, uh, which provide uh, support for the market. And then we've got the PIC that um, invests in a great number of, of South African companies. So there's a natural flaw uh, below which uh, the shareholding can't really fall. But what that does is it makes the um, offshore investment so much more important. They really are most of the time the marginal buyers who push demand um, for uh, South African companies up or down. So if they have more demand for our companies, the JSE's rating increases. But if they are selling out of the JSE, then the rating decreases. Um, you know, the supply and demand dynamic um, is sometimes as important as the underlying results uh, of these companies. Um, I mean, if you look at the, the PE of the, the, the JSE all share index at the moment, which is, you know, 40% below the FTSE 100, which is depressed in its own right, and you know, less than half, well, well below half what, what uh, the S&P 500 is. Um, and that's not all just due to uh, higher growth expectations. A lot of that is due to simply the demand um, dynamic not, uh, not being conducive for the JSE. We've seen a decline in foreign ownership, but ironically we've seen a lot of buyouts by foreign players into JSE-listed businesses. DP World's buyout of Imperial comes to mind. Is this indicative what you've been saying now, that these companies are trading at such cheap multiples that these foreign uh, businesses come in and sweep them up at ridiculously cheap prices. Exactly, and it speaks to the point. I mean, trade buys are, are happening because there's, there's value to be had, but the portfolio flows 
uh, are not happening because uh, you know these the, these portfolio managers they spoil for choice. Um, you know they can they can send their money anywhere in the world and, and many emerging markets. And you know if the the South African companies don't you know pop up front and centre for them, you know they, they you know they're not going to go look for the South African gems. Um, these gems have to be often thrust in front of them. Analyst coverage was another key point that you raised. Why is sell side, this analyst coverage, so important that has decreased by 30% over the last three years as your piece outlined? It's important, uh, certainly for South African investors, but less so. Um, because the, the South African investors, it's a small market, small community. We, you know, we know the companies on the JSE. Um, you know, we've got direct relationships with those companies. Um, so, so, so we, we, we get to, we get to, to understand um, what's going on with the companies. Uh, we can comfortably invest in them and, 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 and be kept up to date. But the emerging market fund managers, the offshore shareholders, um, they have... They have, say, a typical uh, EM fund manager has maybe over a thousand stocks in their universe. But they will only hold 50 or fewer stocks in their fund. So you've got to get from a thousand uh, down to that 50. And many South African companies are just simply one of a thousand. Um, you need brokers, and traditionally and historically, brokers would be promoting their research on the JSE companies to these emerging market fund managers. I mean, that's how brokers make their money, right? Uh, they, they write good research and the EM fund managers trade through them. Um, you know, I used to work for, for uh, an international uh, a bank and we spent as much time on the phone to the emerging market fund managers uh, as we did to the local fund managers. And we spent two, three weeks a year abroad pounding the pavement, going to speak to these EM fund managers and telling them the South African stories. Um, and, you know, often it was on your second or your third road show uh, that the fund manager actually took interest and started doing some work. It takes groundwork to create visibility. Um, and if the brokers are not doing that groundwork work for you as a listed company, you have to do it yourself. And that is not that easy. Um, a lot of investment has occurred in investor relations uh, businesses by, by large South African companies. But it, it does not carry as much weight as having you know, a good amount of analysts covering you and contributing to your consensus numbers, which is often a screening tool that these emerging market fund managers look at first. L lastly, I spoke to fund manager Pitful Yun yesterday. He's listed businesses himself. We were briefly talking on this topic. He says there's no ways you would do it again. It just makes no sense if you're a small to mid-cap business, as you've been saying. Marius, you lay Ferie for a second. How do we turn this trend around? You find um, different ways of um, promoting research in your stocks. Um, many many uh, bosses internationally... Uh, the Deutsche Börse is a good example. They actually partner with research providers to provide coverage on undercovered segments of, of the market. That certainly is one way uh, of, of doing it. Um, and the JSE, the JSE will well look at, uh, at options like that. Um, 
you then also, in my opinion, need to find a way of getting the more interesting, exciting uh, companies uh, uh, onto your platform. But you have to offer them more than simply a place to trade uh, the shares. Uh, the, the, these companies must um, find an improved, uh, you know, improved access to, to capital and improved visibility through the listing. Um, and I think, uh, you know, we've got many uh, uh, alternative bourses now as well uh, in South Africa. And I think there, there is going to be a push for, for these, uh, you know, whether it's A2X or Altex or, or some of the others, to help companies increase their, their visibility, um, which will then help them to, to access capital. Well, thanks for being with us today, and we look forward to being back in your company tomorrow. Same time, same place uh, from the Biz News team. Until then, cheerio. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at Biz News.